Hi, I hope you're having a great Sunday. I am Carla with Race to Walk, and uh, this is just a short chat with um, a few thoughts and also an update on where we are with my Afghan Christian friends who are in Islamabad right now. But um, the title of the stream is actually, I put as, Are Some People Beyond Salvation? And this came up this week. Uh, it was an interesting conversation that we had in our Monday uh, group with the Afghan Christians. So I have been teaching two different groups. Um, the Monday church at Kabul Hope is um, their uh, house church actually in one physical location when I teach them. And then the Friday group that I teach, we connect on, they're usually in different locations, all different locations. So um, different locations across the city. So that's a separate one. So Monday, we kind of have an actual lesson. And then Friday, we've just been giving an update. It's a different group of people, some overlap between the two groups. But the Friday group, we talk about where we're at as far as uh, with immigration. And also, we just have been focusing on prayer this week. So which reminds me, um, I was going to do a slide with our verse for the week, which I forgot to do, but that is, uh, if you want to be praying with us over this verse, it's actually Isaiah 33, uh, 22, which is God is our law giver and our judge, and he is our rescuer. So that is our, um, that's been our prayer point that we're going to be praying for this next week. But back to the topic of, are some people beyond salvation? So, um, some of our house church members went to a conference in uh, Pakistan, in Islamabad. And what is very common there is, uh, as you, or maybe you're not aware, but um, Christianity is a very small percentage of the population in Pakistan. It's 3% of the population. But there are churches there. And uh, my friend Mark that I've uh, brought me into this, um, his ministry, is that he has done uh, conferences uh, connecting with uh, probably 20 25 different Pakistani pastors throughout um, throughout Pakistan and what they will do is really common is that they'll have a Westerner come and speak um, one of the pastors told me that recently it's just you know since the pandemic started it's mainly via zoom and they will come and speak and then uh, the, the Western speakers, the Western whoever's teaching, are usually the ones that fund the conference. So um, they will, like if you think about like, they'll do this sometimes here too in the U.S. Like if I've, I've gotten invitations for different business conferences where they say, you know, if you pay X amount, you know, we'll give you a time to speak. Or um, sometimes if you are see articles and magazines. It's not just because somebody thought, oh yeah, they're newsworthy. Now it's because it's actually paid publicity. They'll, you pay them for this magazine that, um, and then they'll do an article on you like doc line. It's one like that. Uh, there's, there's quite a few of them out there. So it's really paid publicity. So however you want to look at that, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, Mark told me, I didn't really understand this until Mark told this, told me this, but, um, I get, he said like during the, the Soviet area, uh, in the Eastern Bloc countries that that was pretty common because you kind of get like, if you go and preach in these communist countries, you know, you kind of get like, 
bragging rights sort of in Christian circles sort of. Uh, he said that one uh, Russian pastor told him that this is like 20 years ago, whenever it was, you know, before the Iron Curtain came down, that he would have up to 10 offers a week, people offering to pay to be able to speak in his pulpit. So there's kind of an industry around um, putting on conferences for uh, Christian teachers and speakers who want to come and speak. And, you know, since Pakistan is a poor country, you know, they wouldn't be able to do these conferences if it weren't for, you know, that Western funding. And what they'll do is they'll go and they'll bus in, um, you know, people that can come and they'll, you know, provide the food. So these are people that wouldn't have the opportunity to do this otherwise. Um, it's, if you think about like VBS, like we do, it's, I guess it's kind of the same thing. So that's, that's the, uh, kind of the dynamic of what's going on. And my point of explaining that is that, um, I'm not sure how much vetting there is of some of these people that are coming in to speak. And so if you have a, a minority, um, you know, if only 3% of the population is in, uh, is a Christian. And then the other, the other challenge is that there aren't as many materials, Christian materials that are available. And one of our pastors said that that's why he went to an English language seminary, just because they're, there aren't very many, there's not very much Christian material in Urdu. So there's very limited instruction in general beyond, so you have these, these Westerners coming in, right, and teaching. So Monday, when I was in my, um, in the Bible study, uh, the head of the house church had said that there were several of them that went to this conference um, in Islamabad. I guess they had this one area where, uh, Christians can, where it's permitted for Christians to have events there. And he said, uh, he was explaining to me what it was that they talked about. And they were talking about evangelism to, you know, their fellow Muslims. And so I'm assuming he, when I was asking him, I said, Hey, do you know any, I, I asked Barnabas after I heard all this from the house church, I asked Barnabas, uh, our, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but, um, I asked our Pakistani, one of my, the Pakistani pastors I knew if he was aware of this conference and he asked me, oh, is it so-and-so? And I said, I, I don't know. I've just heard that it was a Canadian and a U.S. Uh, speaker that came and were teaching. But so I'm not exactly sure what the format was. So either I'm assuming that, that the, the Westerners were speaking in English and then it was either translated from Urdu to Dari for the other people that didn't speak Urdu, or it was translated from English, and maybe they had a couple translators, maybe it was from English to Dari and English to Urdu. I don't know. So it was either at least one layer of translation from the speakers to the people that, you know, our people that heard it, and then they're, you know, listening and understanding what they're gathering from it, and then the head of our house church is explaining to me what he heard. So he's speaking in Dari and it's being translated to me in English. So when I say this, uh, keep in mind, there may have been some miscommunication in this translation. But what I'm saying is, I'm going to tell you is like, this is what 
they understood as it was translated to me. And what these Westerners were saying was that there are some people that are just, they, they actually classified them as colors. Like there's some people who are black and it doesn't matter. They're just beyond uh, salvation and it's not even worth it, even trying to witness to them. And then they had these other colors and like going up to green when people were just ready to receive Christ. So number one, if you've watched any, any of the videos on my other on my channel, it's very clear. I'm not a Calvinist. I quite frankly, I think Calvinism is a doctrine from the pit of hell. So keep that in mind. I am not a Calvinist. So that's one thing. Maybe these people were, and that's how they're explaining it, explaining to these, these, uh, you know, Pakistani and Afghan believers that there are just some people that aren't going to believe because they're not the elect. I don't know if that, that's what they were saying or if it was just that, I don't know, but um, what really bothers me about this is that, number one, like I said, the resources that they have are so limited that I hate, have, I hate the thought that there's bad teaching reaching them because they just have so little, right? But the other thing is that just as a culture in that area, it is so, there's so much tribalism. And, and I know that we have issues in the U.S. Like we have, there's racism, there's, you know, we have our little groups, but that is like another level beyond. So we've had conversations within people in our group that they question the validity of the faith of other people that, you know, are connected in because they come from a different tribe, like a, just a, so Pashtuns are the majority ethnicity in both Afghanistan and in in uh, in Pakistan, and so you know they're kind of they're they're the the, the ethnicity that's in control, and so there's a lot of uh, racism towards the minority ethnic groups. So there's that that's going on, but some of the people in our groups question whether a Pashtun can become a Christian. It's like they doubt, they doubt the that this person, a particular person, can really be a Christian because their past tune and they, their family has historically been Sunni. They question that. Um, I've had, we have a, a judge that we need to get evacuated from, and his family from Afghanistan. And I didn't understand this until uh, they explained it to me. But you know, we think. Um, of a judge as, you know, judicial law. They're like, he's a cleric, he's a mullah, he's, he has to know the religious law of Islam in order to be a judge. So um, they question whether he's, I mean, they question a lot of different things. And there's a lot of skepticism towards people who come from different tribes. And just even beyond, like, Christians questioning that, I mean, there is so much hostility between uh, different countries there, like Pakistan and India. I mean, one of uh, Don does uh, Don Shire Ministries that has been helping do, um, you know, is, is receiving donations. He has orphanages in uh, India that he support, supports. And so when Mark and I were talking with uh, one of the pastors to begin with, he said, well, you know, it might be a hard time. Uh, there might be some difficulty for Don to get get help to us because he does ministry in India. 
like literally they would reject help help from somebody because he also ministers in India. This is the kind of thing that it is. If you look like just go on on Twitter and look and see what, you know, Pakistanis and, and uh, Indians are saying each about it, about each other. There's so much hostility, a lot of hostility. And same pastor, Pakistani pastor, his, his wife died of COVID. And I said, well, you know what? He said she was vaccinated, but they had uh, a, a Chinese vaccine. That's what they have available there. Or one of the things they have available there. And I said, oh, well, what about... Uh, what about the Indian vaccine, Covaxin? Because it's like, you know, they're right next to each other. He's like, oh, no, no, no. Would not, would not take an Indian vaccine because that's like the level of just wouldn't take, wouldn't take something to save your life from India. That's the kind of hostility that's there. And so if you're going in and you're feeding into that sort of belief where some people are beyond it. There's like you're you're feeding into this antichrist spirit that is saying this isn't for you. And I've been to um, some uh, churches and services here where they have they'll have different flags, flags of different nations up. And I always thought that was kind of you kind of see that in you know charismatic circles sometimes, and it's like okay, you know that's fine. I didn't really understand the significance of that until I started um, really actually working with the Afghans. Because even like the Pakistanis, I was just seeing like the conferences that they had. I didn't really see, wasn't seeing that level of integration that I have with um, when I've been working with the Afghans. And so when they have services, they will have, this is a screen uh, picture one of the, the meetings that they sent to me. And you see these flags up of the different countries. And I didn't really understand until, you know, seeing how they interact and some of the skepticism about other people groups, what this is actually, what this actually means. And this is, this is taking a, um, this is in a, a society and cultures where there's so much hostility between the different people groups. And they're coming together beyond that hostility. This is this is a healing of the nations. This is this is what it is. And so when the Westerners come in and we are discouraging that, when we're saying that there's some people that you can't help. There's some people that aren't going to listen and aren't going to heal up here. You are um, undermining the message of the gospel. You know, you're you're putting a block up to God's good end. And I uh, I've been thinking a lot about this this week, like how much um, I don't know how much damage we can do when we're just uh, going in and not really understanding the culture that we are, um, that we're going into and, and what kind of impact the, the words that we're saying can have. And maybe the people that were teaching that conference, maybe that's not what they meant, but that's how it was understood. And in the class on Monday, they were explaining to me, you know, what this person was saying. I said, well, you know, I don't agree with that. 
you know, I, I, no one is beyond the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a Holy Spirit that, uh, redeems people. It's a Holy Spirit that convicts our hearts and we just need to be a witness. And, um, you know, I said, wherever, whatever situation you're in, um, just ask the Holy Spirit what you should do. And maybe sometimes it's just being a friend to somebody. Maybe sometimes it's just, um, you know, helping somebody or not responding, um, not letting the Holy Spirit, you know, guide your responses to things. For example, you know, one of the people in my Bible study here in Houston, um, he is very, uh, he's very always, you know, witnessing. And his story is, you know, he uh, came to Christ late in life. He'd made a lot of mistakes and uh, he had created a lot of um, uh, walls. He broken relationships with his family and he, his, uh, his daughter didn't want to have anything to do with him for a long time. And I said, well, what, what was it that finally, even after he became a Christian and she thought that he was just saying he was a Christian to, you know, basically excuse everything that he did in his past. And I said, well, what was, what was it that made a change? And he said, it was when my uh, townhouse burned down and I was standing there and, uh, my, his ex-wife and his daughter were standing there and, and, um, Somebody asked him, I said, you know, why aren't you stressed out? And he said, everything I have is God's. And, you know, he was just had a peace. And it was that response that um, really kind of built a bridge. And he said uh, he invited his ex-wife and his daughter out to uh, lunch. And they had a conversation. They hadn't had a conversation in a long time. And he said, it's still, um, you know, it's still not easy it's a lot, it's been a long road and it still is because there's a lot of things, uh, consequences just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that the consequences of your former actions disappear. But my point is, you know, we are the witness of the gospel is supposed to be in the transformed lives of the people. And, um, it's not always, um, we should know the words. We need to be able to give a response. But um, I think what's more impactful is um, being that living witness. And um, people are in different stages of, you know, their receptivity to hearing the message. But the human beings themselves are that nothing can uh, eliminate that. Nothing can take away that you know, we're, we're imagers of God and nothing can take that away. So we had a discussion about that. And, uh, the head of the house church said they were, he's in this conference and he said that he met a, at the conference, he met a Pashtun, former, um, former Sunni Muslim that had become a Christian and God had given him I'm not going to tell you his name, but God had given him, well, he was coming from Afghanistan, God had given him the head of the house church name and said he would meet him at the conference. And so he came, found our uh, head of the house church and had this conversation. And this this uh, Afghan, new Afghan believer, former uh, Pashtun believer, former Sunni, his father actually works in, uh, is a Taliban member and works in, the 
um, Ministry of Vice and Virtue, which is an actual thing. I Every time I hear it, I always think of 1984. But I just think that it was confirmation that, you know, yeah, passions can become Christians. And, you know, no one is beyond the power of God. And so this this passion believer has been witnessing to his sister. He's been talking to his dad. And so it's like these little, um, you know, the message of the gospel is like creeping in through these these cracks in the walls. But anyway, so that was this week. And um, I, uh, so much this week, I just like all these like little, little groups of, of Christians. One of the things that we pray about in the Friday group is we pray for, it's like we need contact, we need favor, we need sponsors, and we need funding. And I've been so many contacts this week. It's just, it's just crazy. And like some of the contacts have been like these, you know, you think that there aren't very many Christians in um, Afghanistan or Islamabad and or in Pakistan, and they've just been popping up all over the place. So, um, anyway, I, it's just kind of my thoughts on that. I, I think that. Um, you know, especially for the church in Pakistan that's under so much persecution, so much stress. I mean, they're just, they're, you know, second-class citizens. They're always at risk. Uh, even, I mean, our Afghans are at risk for being Afghans and then particularly for being Christians. But even Pakistani citizens are at risk for being Christians. We had uh, one of the groups had to stop meeting, have stopped have, having people come to their house because it was raising too many questions and they were afraid they were going to get evicted from their, from their home. And so, you know, it's, it's a real thing. I mean, it's actual persecution, not, you know, faux cr- persecution that American Christians think that, you know, being asked to wear a mask so you don't get, you know, your neighbor sick. That's not persecution. That's actually uh, biblical, like read Leviticus sometime. But anyway, I just, um, they can't afford our weak faith. They can't, Pakistanis, Afghans, they cannot afford to be infected by the blight that has, uh, is so prevalent in the U.S. church that can't even stand up to, you know, a difference of opinion. You know, they, they can't afford our weak faith. They have to have the full thing. They need it all. They need the full power of the gospel, not just this just comfortable, you know, ideology that we use as an excuse for Christianity so often in the U.S. But anyway, those are my thoughts. Um, so please continue to pray for them. And it was just uh, it's kind of cool, you know. Pashtun Believer got a word of knowledge and uh, sought out our um, house church leader. So anyway, the other thing I just learned this morning is that there are actually um, acronyms for, let me see what this is. It said Muslim, I don't know. I I connected our, um, what was it? I connected one of the heads of, like, I'm connected with two, like, little, one is a house church as in, in a house. The other one is a house church. It's like they meet in a home, and they, they're kind of like uh, just a home network of believers. But um, I connected them with someone who, another Afghan av- advocate, and they said, uh, 
this person had um, is helping somebody in their immigration process, and uh, they became a Christian. And so when I introduced this advocate to the head of this second church, they asked, are they an MBB or a CBB? And he said, well, what is that? And he said, "It's a. are they a Muslim background believer or a Christian background believer? So I thought that was, was like, wow, you know, like they're saying, do they have a heritage of being a Christian or are they coming from an Islamic family? So that was, that was one of the things I learned today. So anyway, I'm just going to put that. Those are my thoughts about um, uh, how we look at evangelism. But uh, update, oops, that's a slide. Um, update about where we are at with um, our groups. So last week I said that two of our people, um, some college kids, or should be in college, that somebody had donated um, money for a gate pass for them to get back so they could make their UNHCR um, interview. And this is a reminder of what that process looks like. Um, they had just, he, the brother who's older had registered his sister with SHARP, which is the, the Pakistan organization that um, takes in the applications for the UNHCR and um, in Pakistan. And this is a, was a call. He had registered a year ago, over a year ago, and still hadn't gotten the first phone call for the pre-screening interview. And his sister, they registered her he, like a month or two ago, and she got called. So they're giving a preference to women and girls because it's just so dangerous just to, even to be a woman in Afghanistan. And if she hadn't made it back to Islamabad then for that interview, then they would have pushed back her interview for like a year. So uh, they make it back. I didn't hear the whole story. They said that uh, there was a lot of problems. And honestly, there was, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but while they were traveling to one gate to go through, because they had a pass for one gate, they, uh, the main gate, the Torkham border crossing was closed. And so, because uh, there were conflicts there. And um, there's just been a lot uh, in the past couple weeks. Uh, the beginning of the month, there were some suicide bombers in Islamabad. Uh, I got a message this morning that there was some sort of um, bombing in Kabul, you know, some sort of conflict like that was going on at the time. Um, there's just been a lot, <laughs> a lot of uh, conflict uh, in between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And um, they are, uh, I don't know, they, it, it, there's just been a lot. But anyway, so they get back. Uh, I think I had mentioned that, that they had sent me a message a couple hours before in Sunday morning saying that they had made it back to Islamabad. And they go in on Monday, and when they're supposed to have their appointment, and there was confusion in the office, so they couldn't do that. And so um, they went back on Thursday, and she has, now has a case number for her uh, UNHCR refugee certification. So that's a good thing. Um, the, 
like I said, there's been a lot that's going on and there was a lot of, um, there were some good things, but there was a lot of, um, not so good things. Um, actually bad things, a lot of sadness this week. And it started out, um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago about, the, uh, that the brother-in-law of one of our members had been, uh, stopped at a checkpoint. He's in Afghanistan, still in Afghanistan, had been stopped at a checkpoint by the Taliban and they checked his phone and in the memory of his phone, he had a Bible app and they beat him and, uh, he had contusions all over his head and had to, uh, they actually left him for dead and he had to escape somewhere. And so he's, he went into the hospital for a little while and then he left and they're not sure where he's at. And then, um, this same family, it was his cousin that I mentioned had been trying to go from Brazil up through South America to claim asylum at the border. And, um, I had talked to my ex-sister-in-law last week and she had some possible resources for him. And so I asked the person in our group where he was because I hadn't heard last I knew he was in Mexico city and I hadn't heard anymore. And he has been missing for, uh, they haven't heard from him in over a month. And they also had contact with some of the people he was traveling with. They haven't heard from them either in that same amount of time. So the best case scenario is that he's in jail somewhere, either in Mexico or in the U.S. And if they made it to the border, um, but um, odds are is that he's dead. So there's that. And that was hard to, um, I was talking to a friend about this and she said, um, thing is, I didn't send an email, you know. I didn't ask. It came to my mind a couple days, a couple times, a couple different times, and I didn't. And I was talking to her, and she's like, you know, it's not your fault. And it's like, I could it's like you standing there, somebody jumping into a pool, and you say, well, oh, I didn't tell you to get in, but you, there's a rope there, and you don't. And I, I didn't, and uh, it's just a reminder that, like, if... If I do have a thought like that to follow through on it, I mean, this isn't an excuse, but I, you know, right at that time, there was so much stuff going on. I had like, wasn't even just with, you know, the Afghan groups. I mean, like probably six different areas, people like wanting my, you know, needing me to do something. There's all these problems. Nothing's getting resolved, but having, you know, people from Pakistan, not the Afghans, not the Afghans. They've, they've never done this to me. Like I've had Pakistanis call me at like two, three, four, five o'clock in the morning, not an emergency. I've told the Afghans, like if you get like a rescue or something, you can call me in the middle of the night, but I, I'm not answering uh, phone calls, you know, just to chat from Pakistan at three o'clock in the morning, but I was getting a lot of phone calls and I was kind of getting sick and I, it was just a lot and I was tired. And I, I remember thinking I'm tired. <laughs> I don't want to do another thing. And 
and I didn't ask for this, you know, and, and I didn't call and I should have. And so I, I don't know, I guess it's, um, anyway, I was, I was this reminder, like when I let circumstances run me, which is what was going on at the point, at that point, then those things can happen, I guess. So anyway, um, I'm still praying for him. I, if you know somebody that can track down, uh, <laughs> uh, somebody in Mexico, let me know. Cause they don't, they don't know where he is. So I was a cousin and then I can't remember if it was Monday or Tuesday. I get another message, same person. So this is all the same family. And, um, they're another brother-in-law had just been killed by the Taliban and he'd been held in jail for 40 days and then they killed him. So, um, the only plus, I mean, you know, this is all a, they are CBB. They are Christian background believers. And, um, so he has other family members that are Christians. And, um, so, you know, we do have that confident hope, you know, that he's, um, that he's with Jesus now, but the other positive is that they know what happened to him because um, one of the things, if you've watched any of the Afghanistan Project podcasts, like what some of the people have said, they're not even, what the, the Taliban used to do was they, they would, when they killed somebody, they would leave their body, you know, out, like in front of the family in one of their letters, you know, with threat um, to kill the rest of them. Uh, they're not doing that anymore because the uh, it, it gets posted on social media and then they look bad and then they don't like it. So they're not returning the bodies and they've been selling body parts and organs to China. So positive thing about all of that is that at least they know. They know what happened to him. He's not just, you know, disappeared, never to be heard from again. We have another family in the house church that they don't, they have no idea. There's a brother that's missing and they don't, in Afghanistan, they have no idea where he's at. So anyway, so that was the sad part. Um, like I said, we have gotten a lot of, um, a lot of contacts this week. Um, there's just been so much. I, I just don't even know. Um, we're still working on, um, uh, my focus right now is what I'm working on is, um, finding sponsor groups for the families and two of the families have siblings. Oh, this is the other thing that happened. Yeah. So the, the two siblings of our translator in Washington state, uh, they have, I'm not sure if I've explained this. They have, she, her brother, her 13 year old brother was killed by the Taliban. Um, when she became a Christian 15 years ago. And, uh, that's how Mark knows her. She, I came on a teacher exchange program, um, and, uh, she became a Christian, did not go back, uh, applied for asylum and received it. She said it was super fast. Like when she, she came and applied for asylum and Mark knew her, was friends with her host family and helped her get into college and get established. And so she's been friends with that, with his family for 15 years. And so she, uh, applied for, after that happened, the Taliban killed her 13 year old brother. And maybe I explained this. I don't remember. Um, 
left a letter of threat, threatening the rest of the family, saying, we're going to kill you all. And two of two of her brothers escaped to Europe, and but there's two siblings that are were still in Afghanistan when the Taliban took over. She had applied for a family reunification visa for them back in 2015. Um, that Nothing's moved on that. Her parents and her youngest sister, she was able to get to the United States on a family reunification visa. Um, her brother and brother-in-law worked on a construction project for a U.S. company. They have SIV applications in. She also, you know, in 2021 filed humanitarian parole applications for them. Those are all sitting there. And it's her nieces and nephew that I'm teaching the English, the, you know, doing classes with on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So um, she has, she's also putting together sponsor groups through this Welcome Corps because we're hoping that that will be a faster move. So to me, common sense says, You've already approved two, you've all recognized that there's risk for this family in two different cases. Why is this taking, we're going on eight years now. This is ridiculous. But um, she's uh, forwarded this to, um, I, I talked to a staff member in Dan Crenshaw's office and they said they would, you know, if, if her representative is not doing anything that they would look at it as a courtesy and I'm going to go in and talk to them too. So we're going to see if we can get something moving on that a little bit more. But her nieces and nephews, I, they, the niece has been asking me if I can have more friends that will teach more classes with them. And I actually have somebody now. And so the, the person is a friend. She's a friend of a friend of mine from the apologetics program. And um, this, this person that's going to be I kind of look at her as our instructional uh, designer. We're going to, um, she's going to be kind of setting up like what they're going to be doing. I've just been reading with them. That's it. And so she has a um, uh, background in education. She's homeschooled. She knows what, or she has homeschooled her kids. She knows what she's doing. And so she's going to be kind of like the head person of this. And if we have other people that want to help, then she's going to give them guidance. So that was a good thing. That was, that was Thursday, so that was a good thing that happened this week. And uh, so, like I said, that is that is going on. I also called the Girl Scout Council in um, in uh, Washington uh, around for its uh, Vancouver and South. Anyway, there she's in Vancouver. It's the Council of the Girl Scouts there. And talked to somebody there, and I, I was just explaining, you know, that I've been meeting with um, – these two girls that uh, they're sitting there, we're trying to get her them over to her aunt. And one time when I, I was talking to them, I asked them if they talked to any of their friends that they knew in Afghanistan. And she's like, no, we don't have any friends. So they've just been in this apartment for almost two years now, you know. And um, so I'm going to see if we can get them connected with a troop there so maybe they can start making some friends so that when they come over, they'll have, they'll know some people. So that was, that was a little bit of movement this week. But um, the other part is I'm looking for, um, to put together sponsor groups for our families through Welcome Corps. Like I said, this was, this is a program that, where is it? Um, my thing. Okay. 
So this is Welcome Corps. This was just announced on January 19th by the State Department. And this is right now, they're, um, it's the, in the first phase, they're just doing uh, refugees that are already in the system. But in the middle of this year, so just a, in a few months, they are going to be allowing private sponsors to select um, so select rec basically recommend refugee families into the user app system. So this is how this is like an overview of our refugee vetting process. And you can see everything starts with UN the UNHCR, the UN Human Rights Council. They can also for this humanitarian parole for the Afghans, they can also be referred in by a U.S. embassy or an NGO, like one of the resettlement NGOs. But primarily, it's the UNHCR. Um, what we found, and, and that's why the, uh, it was so important for, um, this, you know, one of the college kids to get back because they, they can't go anywhere with, they, they can't move unless if they can get into the system. So with Welcome Corps, it's kind of bypassing this bottleneck of UNHCR and allowing the private groups to go in. So this is why I think that this is like literally an answer to prayer. But um, it's, it's interesting because um, sometimes when I reading things and talking to different people, they are skeptical about the program. The other challenge is, so there's two things. Number one, people are skeptical, period, about uh, Afghans being allowed to immigrate. I actually had somebody last night tell me, you know, just don't, you know, you're giving them false hope. And I'm thinking, you know what? People are immigrating. And yeah, it is a lot of work. But like I said a couple of weeks ago, there's a difference between can't and won't. And some people say it can't be done because they won't do it and they don't want to put the effort in. There's a difference. There's a difference. It can be done. And I don't want to, I'm at the point where I'm like, if you don't want to do it, just say you're not in. That's totally fine. But do not tell me I can't because you are just going to irritate me because yes it can be done and when I started this out I had people tell me I don't think you should get involved and I did ask God for about it and I gotta go so don't tell me I can't anyway so there's skepticism in general just because it is such a nightmare to get people into the program and then the other the other challenge is I was talking to a church here locally that has sponsored refugees in the past. And the thing is, this is our, the, the process. So they start with like UNCR and they go through all this vetting. And then once they get to the location where they're going to live, there are local agencies that help get people resettled and situated. And um, so this is kind of like in this placement section is 30 to 90 days and so those agencies like Houston here in Houston like the interfaith ministries and Houston welcomes refugees they then contact like local organizations particularly churches that can help the refugees get situated so like like for just for example Lakewood Church was super involved in helping that first wave of um, Afghans resettle so this Welcome Corps is kind of a, an expansion of uh, the program for Ukrainians and Venezuelans. Um, it was actually, this Welcome Corps is based on the Canadian program because they have something similar. Um, 
And they started, they kind of did a pilot program with Afghans that came in that initial evacuation, but then they cut it off. And so there wasn't that option anymore. And they, it was just available like through 2022 for Ukrainians and Venezuelans. And now they're making it open to anyone. So the thing is with some of the groups that have already done this in the past, they're familiar with how it has worked in the past. And so the lady that I talked to, she said, well, we might be interested in doing it, but this, we need to hear from this organization before we'll commit to it because they have to go through this whole thing. Welcome Corps, it's a little opposite because the private sponsors can get them in at the front end. Like if you have a commitment here, then you can get them, you can get them in, you can bypass that UNHCR um, certification and get them in. So the other like little kick about this is that um, I think I mentioned that I've, uh, Arlie Lowen of Premier Ministries has been super helpful in all of this. Um, he has been ministering to, he's Canadian, but he's been ministering to the Afghan church since 2022, not 2022, 1992, 30 years. And, um, he said that the, the problem was, is that those refugee cards are not being issued to Afghans. And I mentioned this last week, and I'm like, I don't understand why this is. What what does it take to be able to get these UNHCR cards? So um, what he said, as I was talking to him this last week, he said that like countries like Greece, they're not allowing um, UNHCR to issue those cards because if their immigration application is denied, then the refugee will be you know, will be staying in Greece and they don't want more refugees. So they don't want the card. So they have that designation. So that's why they're stuck in limbo. And, uh, on the Afghanistan project podcast, somebody mentioned the same thing that they think that's what's going on in Pakistan. Pakistan doesn't want more refugees. So they're not allowing, they don't want the cards to be issues because they don't want, they don't want refugees setting settling there if they can't make it somewhere else. And so um, it makes a little bit of sense. It actually makes sense to me based on what some of our other people have said. They're like, well, you know, you have to know somebody in order to get the refugee designation or you have to be have like another um, embassy has to request that their case be processed. So my thought is I, I did provide a, um, a letter to the college kids saying that I knew them as Christians and they were, were at risk. Um, my thought is that if we have sponsor circles committed for our families that, um, maybe if they have a place to land, maybe that will help them with that refugee, uh, designation. And like I mentioned last week, it's not only about being able to immigrate, because the sponsor circle will help with that, but it will help them in that we don't need to spend money on visas for them to be safe in Pakistan. And that is like a huge thing. I mean, we still, the, the visas that we have in process still are not done. They were supposed to be done the end of January. And we still, we had to pay for the gate pass to get, to get those two people back. And now I just got a message from, the head of the house church asking if we could pay for gate passes for the rest of them. And I'm like, 
this isn't, I mean, this is like, we shouldn't have to pay for that. We should have our visa, we should have the visas back. But I understand what he's saying because, I mean, the, I was forwarded a newsletter this morning about everything that's going on and between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And it's like, I mean, we're going to be very fortunate if war doesn't break out in the near future. So I understand why he's asking that, but it's like, we need our visas back. And if we had, if we had our, those UNH CR designations, we wouldn't have to worry about any of it. We would be okay. But anyway, so that's worth that. So it's just been kind of a week. Um, the other thing is that <laughs> this is just kind of funny. So I was, um, I got a message. We've been sending support, like Mark has been sending support for through Dawn. Dawn and Mark have been sending support to the people who are in Afghanistan because they're basically like hiding out until they can make it back. And um, he sent me, when we were first making the list of who we were getting visas for, he asked me if we could put this uh, person, this young woman on the list. And he said, she's, she's a Christian. She became a Christian in, um, in the university and, uh, she's a professional athlete and she's under a lot of threat. And I was like, okay, you know, that's fine. And there was a lot of stuff that was going on at that time. So I didn't really like, uh, pursue that further or even ask. I just remembered university student. That's, you know, she's a woman, she's a university student. That's all I remembered. And so, he asked me, he was mentioning that his wife had went and found her in Kabul. And um, he said, oh, the sports girl. Do you remember her? And I said, oh, yeah. And then, because I didn't remember the whole professional athlete part of it. And I said, what is her, what sport does she play? And he goes, free fight. And I'm like, okay, that's not what I was expecting at all. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I sent a message to... Um, this is the thing. I'm trying to find like support for um, people who, you know, are, um, are Afghans have an affinity with. And so I actually called the uh, UFC and uh, sent an email to them to see if we could like get some support from them from as an organization. And then the other, the other thing, it was just kind of weird. We had this whole discussion on um, Friday. So we had the guy who, got, I don't know if I mentioned this. So there's, there's a guy who got the UNHCR cards for his family. This is a person who got his own, um, UNHCR refugee designation in the first interview because he had a letter from his church in Afghanistan, you know, confirming that he's a Christian. And so he had, he came to Pakistan in like 2021 and then he just got his kids here and he said, I, I sent a lot of emails complaining and he got the refugee designation for his, his family. So I got an email or got a message from another family in the group and they were kind of in the same sort of situation. So they had the father who they had a household who had come ahead of the rest of the family. And, and this, this other family, he had gotten his, uh, UN, uh, refugee designation about the same time, like October, November of 2021. The rest of the family came over. So in the, the one family, he came over first, just got his, his UN uh, designations for the rest of his family. The second family, same thing, came over early, 
brought the rest of the family over and they still have not gotten, they haven't even gotten an interview for the, uh, the rest of the family. And not only that, I didn't know this, but I just found this out. They have to renew that refugee certification, which is crazy. I mean, think this is, this makes sense why they're so backed up because if you have to continue to renew those existing refugee certifications and then nobody's moving anywhere, so you have all these refugees that are sitting there that need the, the certifications and then you're not even like looking at, okay, let's look at this family as a whole. It's like our insanity with our immigration system. I mean, the, the translator's family, four different applications are going to be in when this should be a no brainer. You've already decided in two cases that they're at risk. You know, just think about if we use a little bit of common sense about how the cases are administered, like had connected some of the dots, how much would be cut out? How much of the work that would be cut out? So anyway, I'm thinking, okay, so I gave her, somebody had given us a, a, a card for an attorney with, uh, with that sharp office in Pakistan. So I, I sent it to her and she said, okay, well, I'm going to call him and on Monday. So two similar situations, this one guy, he's gotten it for all of them. So I'm looking, I have the spreadsheet that I'm doing for all our different groups and the families looking at the whole thing. And I, he had given me all the details on the list, but I like actually like looking at the documents. It just kind of like looking through it kind of helps me. I don't know. It just helps me connect things. And I'm looking at these, these passports and his, um, and, and thinking, okay, and the visas, the Pakistan visas, and then he has these UNCR cards. So he got his passports, the passports for his children in like March, 2022. Passports, Afghanistan passports, it's a real challenge getting passports. The two college kids that the whole thing with this, this past week, getting them back for their interview, they had come to Pakistan, then went back to Afghanistan. This is last year. Went back to Afghanistan so they could get passports, and, they, and then they were fifteen hundred dollars a piece. And I have heard prices between two and three thousand dollars, three to five thousand dollars. It's basically whatever somebody wants to charge you. The the official uh, passport office in Afghanistan has been closed, so. They have these backstreet brokers, which are basically the official thing. The Taliban have a cut on this. So it's it's complicated just getting a passport there. So I'm looking at this. This is in March. And every time the, the, the kid that got these $1,500 passports for him and his, this is a piece, for him and his sister, I don't know the story behind it, but I can see on his face that there's like, trauma behind it. Something happened. I haven't heard the story, but I can just tell even the way he's describing it, that there's been a lot of stuff behind this. So this guy in our group has gotten like six passports for his family during the same time. So I'm thinking, okay, so that's a lot of money, right? And then these one-year family visas, that is, I've been spending spent two months figuring out how to get them. And then we have, we're still waiting for these, these, the big group of visas to get back. We had, um, two weeks ago, not this last week, not this last Wednesday, but the week before we had three 
family uh, visas renewal to come through. And that took like a month and a half. We had, and then I, we just got one, one person that, that filed on his own through somebody else. It's just like this whole process for the visas. They have to like get somebody to recommend, uh, recommend them and vouch for them. And it's like this whole pre-application thing. And what my understanding is, is that you can go file for visas online for Pakistan but for Afghans, if they don't have somebody basically shepherding the process for them uh, through the whole thing, you can just basically forget it being processed. It will either just sit there or it'll be denied. So um, one person ha had some, uh, I guess somebody in one of the embassies was going to write a recommendation letter for him. That came through on Wednesday. So we have one one more visa uh back for a year-long visa but all the rest of them should have been done a month ago they're still sitting there but this guy got passports visas one-year family visas and then he he just got the uncr cards hcr cards i'm like dude what is your what is your deal like do you like all this money or connections or what's the deal with this because how do you, how did you get this done so i go and i look at his um his he had like this little like description bio because I asked them to let me know what it is that they've done in the past. Because number one, I want to know what they've done, what organizations they've been connected to. Because I'm going to like be talking to them about you need to be supporting your people. You better be helping. And also, I want to know like when they get somewhere, what is it they want to do? You know, I want to try to like connect them with people that they have like an affinity to, you know? And so this guy, I'm like, what did, what did he do? So I go and I look at his little bio that he wrote and he was, um, said he had a chicken farm outside of Maze. I'm not sure how you say it. Mazar Sharif. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. And he was a barber. Totally not what I was expecting. But anyway, I, he said he had all these other jobs doing all these things with these different organizations, but they weren't real jobs. Like he's in purchasing and all this different stuff. But like, dude, I, I don't know. I mean, he's like either he had a chicken farm that with uh, chicken that laid, chickens that laid golden eggs and he just had a lot of money to get this done. Or he is like some sort of miracle worker being able to get all this stuff through. So anyway, um, we have some resourceful people in our group and, um, I, I've told them, you know, they are going to be a blessing wherever they end up. And we just need to have a few friends to help them get them on their way. So this is probably, I'm getting close up to an hour. So I'm going to wrap this up. Um, I'm sure that there are, there's, I'm sure there's things I'm forgetting. There's just been so much that has happened in the last in the last week. Um, and it seems like it's always like that. So again, I'm looking for sponsorships, um, sponsor groups. It has to be a minimum of five individuals or it can be, you know, like churches are really common thing or organizations or whatever. And so if you're interested in that you can go to welcomecore.org. They have, uh, the, the sponsor side is really well laid, well laid out. Um, like what has to happen, there has to be one person that's like kind of like a team lead a little bit that fills out a welcome plan about their plan for helping the people that are coming through. And um, so I'm looking for that. And then I'm still, I, I have those two families 
that already have their refugee cards and have been sitting in Pakistan for a few years and um, they have family in Australia and I still need to figure out how to get them into that um, immigration program. Um, I did get a contact for one person that's supposed to know about the Australian system, but I, I need, I need a referral for them in. That's what I need. And I have no idea where that's going to come from, but I'm just asking people. So anyway, um, and then we need people, we need a lot of things to, a lot of documents. I really, uh, our next goal, we just need to get, okay, we need, we prayer to get those visas spit out so we can get them back. But if I had everybody, it, we're kind of in limbo because I'm not really sure what we need, well, how much more we're going to need to support them in, Af in Afghanistan and get them back. But the other thing I want to do is start getting passports and um, for all the kids that, I mean, there's two adults that have nothing. They don't have, in, in the house church that don't have anything. And then I just was told this week that, um, the, the family, there's a widow that has that UNHCR designation that's been there for a while. None of her family has passports and they're, they're going to need them to immigrate. So we have to get passports for her family too. And then we have a bunch of kids that need, need passports. So we do have, um, some, resources for it, not, not, uh, well, you know, thousands of dollars. We have, um, another contact that can get them for us more reasonable, but it's so we saw quite a few people. So we need to get passports. <sighs> We've seen a lot of stuff anyway, but if you want to donate, you can go to, um, Donshire ministries.org and select race to walk, um, as an option. And I think I did a screenshot. They've changed it a little bit since last week. Uh, where did it go? No, I can't find it. Okay. This is Don and Don's website. I thought I had another slide that showed. Anyway, it's just an option. I, I can't go back and find it, but anyway, so, um, Don is the one who's supporting us with his um, his ministry, he's taking in donations, and then anything that's donated to that will go to this effort. And Don does a lot of other ministries. Um, I think I mentioned last week that he had just left Poland, where they're supporting a church that is helping Ukrainian refugees. Um, he's in Honduras uh, right now. Um, they have an orphanage there. He has effort in Haiti, also in India. And I just saw this because I hadn't even looked at his whole website, but he does, um, internships too. Um, people can go and internship, intern with them if they think that they want to do ministry in other, in other countries. Um, they can go and, uh, get some experience, um, at one of their, um, their orphanages. And uh, one of the things that he mentioned, in on that page about these ministries and um, internships is that you learn how to you know interact with the culture and with the people and like I said in the beginning I think that's really really important um, that's one of the things my girls have 
done quite a few mission trips. And I, it's one of the things we've talked about, like the importance of um, respecting the culture of the people that you're going into rather than just kind of bulldozing in and um, ministering in the way that you want. So um, I think that, um, I think that's really awesome. Like what Don is doing, like he's providing the opportunity to uh, go in and learn as you go on the ground. Um, I've, feel like, you know, Mark bringing me into like what he was doing in Pakistan. He's done ministry all over the world for decades. And it's just so much that you learn by just kind of being around and being a part of it. Like one of the the big lessons I've learned is you cannot assess situations. If this is what he's told me multiple times, you can't assess the situation if you're not on the ground. You have to like you can't really fully know the truth of it. You can get an idea, but if you're not there in person, you're not going to know the whole um, the whole story. And that's been something that's been really important to remember in this because I I have you know as I've been talking about it, I've been getting a lot of contacts from people, and um, um, some of them are pretty insistent about you know help in this way and I can't you know I can't verify the truth of who they are or what their situation is and so I try to explain to people you know I'm just a facilitator the facilitator you know I'm you know Mark's has been providing funds other people that I know have been donating Mark Don's ministry is is administering it I'm just a facilitator and people coming into our effort I, I don't I don't bring them in. I, I have our our people, our group are the ones that are you know kind of assessing the need and who they want to work with because again, it's not even my contacts that we're doing these things through. I, they're the ones that are making contacts, finding ways to do things and you know we're really we're working as a team or trying to as much as we can and I can't um, bring people into the circle that I don't, that I can't um, vouch for like who they are because, you know, they're, they're at risk for multiple reasons where they're at and they can't afford to have people. um, I can't bring somebody into a group that they're not comfortable with having that exposure to. So anyway, um, and, I, and that's part of, uh, there have been other situations like with the Pakistanis that, you know, it's like there's drama, conflict, that they wanted Mark to basically uh, pronounce judgment on. He's like, I can't do that. You know, I, I'm, I'm sitting over here in the U.S. I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know all the circumstances. And so it, having to um, recognize what you can do and what you can't. And um, knowing that, uh, you know, somebody can tell you a lot of different things. And if you don't have a way to verify it, you know, you can you can do a lot of damage if you're not careful about what it is that you do. So anyway, it's been a real learning experience. And um, I would just say, if you want to be involved at all, that uh, to... 
um, find somebody that has some experience in it and um, get involved that way. And I kind of fell into this, but I'm really grateful for the opportunity that I've had to, um, to learn from both Don and Mark. So I mentioned Mark a couple times. I haven't put his website up. Uh, let's see, where is he? Where's Mark? So Mark Ritchie is the one that got me. Where's his slide? Okay, here he is. Okay. I'm on my iPad, so I can't really see as well. Mark Ritchie is the one that got me involved in this, and his website is markritchie.me. And he um, he's written quite a few books. I've done interviews with him. All of his books are awesome. So if you want to check out his books, and they're all different too. Um, God in the Pits is his uh, basically spiritual autobiography. He talks about his life as a, he was a commodities trader. That's how he made his money. If I haven't mentioned this before, he's actually pretty well known in the, in the trading circles. He's known as the legendary Mark Ritchie. And uh, he also has a book on trading called My Trading Bible. Um, Spirit of the Rainforest is the book that I came to know him through. And then the last shibboleth is um, a fiction. It's a novel. And he has another one that is in process. Uh, but, oh wait, uh, we have to finish editing it. And I have not yet. So I haven't got the whole thing. So anyway, he's a uh, very um, versatile uh, in what he writes. And um, so then see. Okay. So I wanted to talk about people that have been helping and giving credit to them. And so this is just kind of like a little, um, little, uh, reminder. So I've people that have been helping so far, like we're not, this is an official thing. I'm not official. We're just, uh, kind of fell into this and we're trying to figure things out as we go. But the first people that were helping like donate and support were people that I know from an unexpected journal and the apologetics program at um, HBU, Houston Christian University, and also people in my Bible study. Again, not official because we're not official. We're just friends helping friends. And then also um, a few people from the group. I consider the Brown Coats of Humble ISD. I have a I have links to this description uh, in the description to information about all of this. And I have a link to a backstory about that one. And then my friend, Leslie Whitcoff, she's actually the first person I took Hebrew from. And, um, she did a, uh, um, uh, story behind this. We were doing, they were going to do a Christmas party, but the money they couldn't, uh, there was a delay in picking up the money that was sent to them for it. And so I was not prepared to teach uh it would have been the day after christmas the 26th which is the last day of hanukkah so i called leslie i'm like hey do you want to uh do something about hanukkah today and so this is like last minute she came on she kind of did like a little show and tell about hanukkah and uh, mark had asked her, them um when he was still teaching the class that they had ever met a jewish person and they said no never met a Jewish person. If you research the history about Jewish people in Afghanistan, there is a long history of Jewish people in Afghanistan. They found actually found Hebrew scriptures in some of the caves there. Um, and they, they think that there was, um, uh, Jewish, uh, groups that came after the exile, like in the Assyrians and things like that. So there's, if you look at some of, it's interesting to me because when I look at some of the, um, 
traditions in Afghanistan. There's a lot of common elements between uh, Jewish traditions too, but um, they had never they never met a Jewish person. So Leslie was the very first Jewish person that they met, and she was using some of the the Hebrew um, Hebrew prayers for Hanukkah, and that was the first time that they had ever heard Hebrew. So anyway, she helped with that, and we wanted to. I wanted to have some sort of another celebration or a party, you know, so they're in the middle of this difficult situation. There's a lot of stress and I wanted to have something else so they could have, you know, something to look forward to. And so we were talking about doing a Tuba Shabbat Seder because Leslie does one every year. And um, we were going to do that at the beginning of February, but our people still aren't back from Afghanistan. So it's kind of a bummer. I mean, I think we might still do it. I don't know. I'll have to talk to her about it, but she's also, um, I'm talking to her about she might be doing like classes with um uh, with the kids or with the adults, like just kind of speaking and helping them with the English. So anyway, so Leslie has been helping too. And um, in the description, if you want to take Hebrew lessons, she can, she's here in uh, Northeast Houston. If you want to have classes in person, she has one on Sundays. She does, um, but she can also teach via Zoom if you want to do that. But if you're interested in Hebrew lessons, you, there's uh, her email address is in the description. But um, I uh, been talking to a lot of people about helping and sometimes people say, well, I don't know what I can do. And um, I think that when we are looking at what we can do, you know, we start with what we have. I, I did a a review on this book, uh, Fierce Compassion, a couple years ago, and it's a story of Donald Dina Cameron. And she, um, she had heard about the, I didn't, I had no idea that there was still slavery into the 20th century in the United States. And it was telling the story about um, the um, Chinese uh, that came to America. There was a lot of uh, slavery and um, they were there was a house that I think was Presbyterians started to help rescue Chinese girls from slavery because they would be, China was in complete poverty and they would allow them to, uh, they would, they would basically either sell their children to come over or they would be promised that they could have a better life. And then once they got here, they would be used as slaves, either sometimes in brothels and then others basically just as house slaves. And so this Presbyterian uh, women's group got together, started a house, and they were rescuing Chinese girls. And Donald Dina Cameron, when she was a young woman, she was just going to come and teach sewing. And um, she came and she ended up like basically um, being the head of this effort to rescue Chinese, you know, these, these girls from slavery. And then they also, you know, started a house for boys. And it was just reading in the story of her life. is just like, you know, so um, it's just evidence that it doesn't matter what it is that you do or where you are, that you can use what you have to help somebody else. And so anyway, you know, whether it's just listening to somebody read or, um, you know, being a friend to somebody or, you know, sharing information or even just like educating yourself about what's going on. So you can, um, 
vote, uh, vote responsibly and um, support people who are going to be making positive changes and good decisions rather than people that are just in it for their own power and influence. So anyway, but I think all of us can do something. Um, and then the other, um, the other um, business that's been helping since the beginning was uh, people at the nest. You know, they started with like prayer and support, and encouragement, and uh, some of they've they've donated. Um, they as business and some of their people that are affiliated with them have helped out in this effort. And so, one of the things that I'm doing for my business and legacy marketing is that I am matching donations to this effort up to 20% of any services that people want to um, donate in that way. So anyway, that is what we're doing. And as far as like, I almost forgot. So as other things, um, if you want more information about just kind of like what's going on on the ground with like immigration for Afghans, as well as things that are happening there, I mentioned last week the Afghanistan Project podcast. They have weekly episodes um, and a lot of really good information. So follow them, tune in, and also if you can share it. Um, the other thing is the ACL app, and I explained this last week. It is um, you can do two things, two different ways. You can either uh, donate, like buy aid packages that will be delivered directly to a family. If you have a family you're trying to help, you can fill out a form for them and they will find a way to get it to them, like either food or fuel or um, they have like a shelter package that has like a tent and different things. So you can just install the app and you can see what's available. You can also donate, and then it will be pooled with other people's donations to get aid packages to people on the ground in Afghanistan. And the other part of it is um, they are kind of like an Etsy for Afghans where artisans can sell their products and you can you can order something and then it's directly helping um, helping people in Afghanistan, particularly women, because they've been um, basically banned from being in public. You know, they were selling things in the marketplace to help support their family. There's a lot of widows, you know, for from, you know, the war in Afghanistan, and they've basically been shut down. And so um, that is one way that you can help. And the other thing, too, is I just um, was sent this this morning. I guess there's a documentary that is this week it's in Seattle. Um, I, I literally just, just got a link to this about an hour ago. So I will go back and put it in the description, but if you're interested in about no interested about knowing like the situation for women in Afghanistan, then this is a, this is a documentary that's, um, out right now. Oh, it's a Seattle opera. That's what it is. I don't know. I, I didn't even have time to read the whole thing, but I wanted to put that out there. So, that. So, um, let me recap. Oh, oh, I know what I, I almost forgot this. Okay. So the other thing, this is what my people are doing. They are doing, cause you know, they're sitting there in, in Pakistan and they need a way to generate an income. They are starting providing 
translation services. So whether you need you want to need a translator via Zoom um, for uh, Persian, which is Farsi or Dari or Urdu as a possibility, or like written translation services. So we have we have a number of really good translators. So if you need need it, then send me a message at uh, contact at Raised to Walk and I can hook you up with them. The other thing too is that they are providing um, lessons for um, either Persian slash Farsi or Dari or Urdu. So if you want to learn those things, then uh, let me know. And was there something else? I don't remember. Yeah, okay. And then the other thing too is that they are, um, sorry, I'm my iPad. Okay. So, um, they're also, we've been talking about, um, you know, being as prepared as we can be for immigration. And, um, so they've been working on, uh, practicing English and they're doing this among themselves. And, uh, they said that there's a native speaker that would like to just, you know, come in and chat with them. They, they'd like to do that too. So I think I hit everything. There was a lot, there was a lot this, this past week, but, that's update. That's what we're doing. And, um, just need to go through and still have contacts that people have given me that I need to follow up on. And I am just hoping that we have some resolution. Some of these things come, come to completion this week. Like it'd be really amazing, really amazing. If I could find that Australian contact or, um, get some sponsor groups committed or I need this. I really want these visas back so we can get our people back safely. But anyway, hope you have a great week. Talk to you next time.